and there's a kind of arms race in mm. cyberspace. I don't think we are going to get to 1648 to the cyber Westphalia for a while because I think there has to be sufficient disruption and destruction on all sides for people finally to realize that there have to be some rules. Wow, that's a scary proposition. It is scary. I think, I think one of the things that troubled me most when I was writing The Square in the Tower was realizing that we might be in the early innings of a kind of uh, 30 years war, uh, only global rather than European. Welcome to the Asia Society Hong Kong Movers and Shakers podcast. Through the short interactive fireside chat, we get to meet with the leaders and game changers in different industries for insights into their personal journey to success, what they learned, how they failed, and other interesting wisdom they may want to share. Today's podcast is with Neil Ferguson, the Milbank Family Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University and a Senior Faculty Fellow of the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs at Harvard. He's also a visiting professor at Tsinghua University in Beijing and the author of 15 books including The House of Rothschild, Empire, Civilization, The Ascent of Money, and Kissinger, 1923-1968, The Idealist. In addition to writing a weekly column for the Sunday Times and the Boston Globe, he is the founder and managing director of Green Mantle LLC, an advisory firm. His most recent book, The Square of the Tower, was published in the U.S. in 2018 and was a New York Times bestseller. Neil sat down with us in Hong Kong to conduct the following interview. written 15 books, but I'd like to start probably with the most influential statesman of the 20th century. Let's talk about Henry Kissinger. Uh, you were the foremost expert on him, having access to him personally and his vast private archives. Here's the book, 1923-1968, The Idealist. As a Kissinger expert, you say that the secret to his success was not in the popular belief that it was his closeness to Nixon as a source of his power, and when he left public office, no future national security advisor or secretary of state, no matter how talented, would ever be able to match what Kissinger achieved. And you like to credit that to his networking abilities. Could you um, sort of elaborate on that? Well, the first volume has been published. That's the one that covers the first half of his life down to 1968. And that's a kind of intellectual biography because the young Kissinger was uh, a refugee, uh, a soldier, um, and then a counterintelligence officer before becoming an academic. Mm. As an academic, he started out, I guess, as a kind of historian and then became a, a political scientist writing about nuclear weapons. But by 1968, he'd established a reputation for himself as a public intellectual and a political advisor. He wasn't a powerful man at that point in his career. And indeed, it came to many people as a surprise when Richard Nixon nominated him as national security advisor because... They hadn't had a close relationship before that. In fact, Kissinger had advised Nixon's rival, Nelson Rockefeller. So what I have to do in volume two, which I'm currently writing, is show how this Harvard professor who had found his way to Washington became so extraordinarily influential that by the later stages of Nixon's presidency, he was clearly the second most powerful man in the administration. And that power endured even after he left office at the end of Gerald Ford's presidency. And I think one part of the answer is the intellectual firepower that that I Mm -hmm. I show in volume two. But the other part is this extraordinary networking ability that Kissinger developed, which he didn't have as a young man, really. He was not particularly gregarious. But, But by the time he gets to Washington in 1969, 
he's developed a style of making friends and influencing people beyond the academic and government worlds. Mm -hmm. And it's that network that I think is the key to his enduring influence. Right. This will be in volume two. This will be volume two. Wonderful. Now, I'd like to sort of jump to uh, present day. Um, something that uh, we, we like to discuss here, you're here in China, and um, one of the points that you've made is that the future of uh, digital financial innovation is uh, the key to future global leadership. History teaches us that power states is inseparable financial power. Uh, the country that leads in financial innovation leads in every way from the Renaissance in Italy, Imperial Spain, Dutch Republic, British Empire, and America, 1930 to today. Uh, you say the U.S.-China rivalry, the second Cold War that we're going through right now, is too focused on trade and telecom. But you think that it's the monetary leadership in the digital realm is where we should focus on. Well, I wrote a book called The Ascent of Money more than 10 years ago, which included as a part of its argument the observation that financial leadership tends to be quite closely correlated with, with power more broadly, that if you look at financial history, being innovative in finance is a source of strength, whether you're talking about the Dutch Republic, uh, the British Empire, the United States most recently. And I think it's much more important than people realize that China has stolen a march on the United States when it comes to electronic payments. Mm. There's nothing in the United States to compare with what has been built by Alibaba and Tencent in this respect. When you are in uh, China, you can't help but notice that everybody's paying for everything with their smartphones, right. and, and that's either Alipay or, or it's, it's WeChat equivalent. Right now, that's a lead that is essentially Chinese in the sense that the payment platforms are based in China. But what's really striking to me is the speed with which Ali and Tencent are expanding their financial right. influence by investing in fintech companies all over the world, especially in emerging markets. You know, look at Latin America, for example, where they're really a big presence. At the moment, all these different electronic payments companies are separate. But I think the key point is that they're interoperable because the technology is basically the same which means that at some point they can start doing significant cross-border payments. When that happens, a big hole is blown in dollar hegemony. I mean, the right. US dollar is the world's dominant currency. It gives the United States huge power, especially because of the way that financial sanctions can be applied. If I'm right, China is going gonna, is gonna to break free to some extent from that dollar dominance. Right. And most people in Washington underestimate that. I'm looking at that right now. If we could stick to the current U.S. administration, um, and we look back on history, um, you say that uh, each U.S. president, each administration has had its own war. Truman and Eisenhower had Korea, Kennedy and Johnson, Nixon, they had Vietnam, uh, Jimmy Carter, Ronald Reagan, the Cold War, both Bushes in Iraq, Clinton, Yugoslavia, and Obama in Afghanistan. For Trump, uh, we're already, you think, in the second Cold War with China, but do you think that there's another threat to the future in terms of the cyber realm? Well, cyber warfare is different from other kinds of warfare because it's a sort of permanent state. It's been going on for years now, and it exists in all kinds of shapes and sizes. Uh, some of it is carried out by state actors. Some of it 
uh, by non-state actors. But I think it's a little misleading to compare it with, I don't know, nuclear war and imagine that there's going to be some system of deterrence. Nuclear war is very on-off. It's either mm -hmm. happening or it's not. But cyber warfare is something that is on all the time. It's just that the level varies right. uh, from day to day and the targets vary. So it's a very different kind of conflict and it's a multiplayer conflict. The US is in some ways the biggest target because it's the biggest and most open economy. But the US, in fact, in many ways was a pioneer of cyber right. warfare. Think of Stuxnet and Iran. So I think... I think this is the new battle space, and it's creating all kinds of puzzles for students of international relations because especially those who grew up in the nuclear age are accustomed to war being an on-off thing mm. and, and deterrence, deterrence being yeah. practicable. I don't see that there is any deterrence in cyberspace. It's a kind of anarchy. So what can these future leaders do then? Well, I, I argue in my most recent book, The Square and the Tower, that without deterrence, the only way that you can restrain the great powers from engaging in really destructive cyber warfare is through some kind of cyber Westphalia, mm. a kind of international agreement comparable to the, the treaties that ended the Thirty Years' War in 1648. You all have to agree not to do things that are really disruptive. And that self-restraint is the only thing that's going to bring cyberspace under some kind of right. control. At the moment, a big problem is that one of the great powers, Russia, has been particularly aggressive in cyber warfare. It's become integral to hybrid warfare, and the Russians have shown absolutely no restraint in, in using it. China, too, has begun to learn from the Russians and I think the result is a kind of free-for-all right. in which everybody's uh, doing it, and there's a kind of arms race in mm. cyberspace. I don't think we are going to get to 1648, to the cyber Westphalia, for a while, because I think there has to be sufficient disruption and destruction on all sides for people finally to realize that there have to be some rules. Wow, that's a scary proposition. It is scary. I think, I think one of the things that troubled me most when I was writing The Square and the Tower was realising that we might be in the early innings of a kind of uh, 30 years war, uh, only global rather than European. And do you think that's happening right now? Oh, yeah. Very much. And I think part of what's confusing is that we expect war not to morph so dramatically we we kind of expect war to involve battleships or boots on the ground mm -hmm. planes flying overhead that kind of stuff and and of course it still goes on yes uh, but you know in truth if you look at the most recent military encounters drones have played a significant part and at the same time as any kinetic action uh, there is a, a cyber dimension where you're trying to win the battle in the information space. Uh, and this is a great source of confusion because many people don't realize that what they're seeing on social media isn't the news of some objective battle. 
that's taken place, what they're seeing is often part of the battle. Part of the cyber warfare. Right. If we could go to the, just talk about your book here, uh, The Square of the Tower, you mentioned it briefly. Uh, there's this quote, uh, there's a few quotes in here you could read. Um, this one. I thought once everybody could speak freely and exchange information and ideas, the world is automatically going to be a better place, said Evan Williams, co-founder of Twitter. I was wrong about that. And then the other quote uh, that you, you said here, uh, John Perry Barlow, uh, we're creating a world where anyone anywhere may express his or her beliefs no matter how singular without fear of being coerced into silence or conformity. Yeah, well, that was then, this is now in the sense that the Barlow quotes from the 1990s when everybody thought the internet was going to be awesome, we'd all be connected, we'd all be able to speak truth to power in a kind of cyber utopia and the F. Uh, Williams quote is from 2017 when it was sinking in that the internet wasn't a kind of uh, libertarian paradise uh, but actually a place in which some very dark things could happen. A, th a central theme of the book is that we, we expected everything to be awesome right. and, uh, and we we're kind of shocked and surprised by polarization mm -hmm. and fake news and all the nasty stuff that goes on in cyberspace and we shouldn't have been surprised if we'd only thought a little bit about it. It was never likely that an interconnected world would be this happy clappy place where right. we all just shared cat videos any more than when the printing press arrived in Europe. Right. Everybody just sent one another printed sermons uh, and agreed uh, on the brotherhood of man. The lesson of the 17th century, of the 16th and 17th century, I should say, is that when you have a new communications technology that really reduces the power of, of human interaction, reduces the cost of human interaction, crazy stuff goes viral as well as good stuff. Mm. And any large network of people connected with a new technology will be likely to self-segregate into hostile clusters. So we shouldn't have been surprised. Right. But Ev Williams, in common with just about everybody in Silicon Valley, was surprised. It was right. like, gee, I never knew it could, could be like this. I thought it was all going to be awesome. You know, it's a pity that people in Silicon Valley didn't take any history courses right. when I was teaching at Harvard. Because maybe if they had, they would have been a little less surprised by what happened. Oh, you could have predicted this for them. Zuck was in Harvard, wasn't he, when you were there? He never took any of my classes. Oh, Mark Zuckerberg should have. I uh, regret it. <laughs> I regret it bitterly on his behalf. Uh, well, let's stick to your book, actually. Which recent feedback about your book, Squaring the Tower, did, do you most appreciate that you receive right now? And are there any revisions that you make to subsequent versions of it? Well, it's two years old now, slightly right. more, in fact, um, because it came out in October 2017 in the UK. Right. And I guess I was most pleased by Deirdre McCluskey's review in the Wall Street Journal, which uh, was not only a generous review, but a generous review by one of the world's great economic historians. That was, that was a, a real thrill. Uh -huh. I haven't got to the point of wanting to change the book, but there's a kind of update afterward or new chapter to be written about everything that's happened since then, since 2017, particularly in the kind of post-mortem uh, that followed the 2016 election. We, we know a lot more now about what happened in 2016 with uh, Russian meddling. Um, we know a lot more about 
the role of Cambridge Analytica, mm -hmm. of Facebook, than we did when I was writing the book. And we also have had a very interesting and as yet incomplete debate about what should be done. Yes. In fact, I wrote a paper for the Hoover Institution with the title, What is to be done? Asking what precisely we need to do to fix the internet. So at some point, I guess an, an updated edition would probably include a version of that essay. Uh, but it's not quite time yet. I think we haven't really made that much progress in the United States on the regulation question. And I guess I'm just waiting for the right moment to, to make an intervention there. To me, it's been frustrating that the political class in Washington, which is not terribly well informed about <laughs> uh, these issues, has kind of gone charging off down the path of antitrust, yeah. as if breaking up Facebook and Google will really solve anything, yeah. even if you can persuade the courts to do it. I don't think that's the key issue at all. Indeed, mm. I think there is a whole uh, complex of different issues around what kind of regulation there should be and also what kind of legal liabilities these companies should right. uh, be under and how, if they're going to be liable for the content that they publish, they can also uphold free speech. Those are the issues that are not really being discussed right. very coherently in Washington right now. And I think those are the issues that a new edition of the book would want to include. Oh, look forward to it. Uh, just a few more questions here. Um, is there um, a deep state? And how should citizens be thinking of the notion if there is a deep state out there pulling our strings? Well, I think the term deep state, which I first encountered when I was reading about modern Turkey, uh, is not a very helpful one if you're talking about the United States or, for that matter, the United Kingdom. Mm -hmm because it has a sinister connotation yes. as if there are dark, deep forces subverting uh, the uh, elected mm -hmm. government. What we're really talking about here is better known as the administrative state, right. and I prefer that term, which, for example, Krista Ruth has written extremely persuasively about. In fact, I quote him in The Square and the Tower, the administrative state is the bureaucracy of central government, which has in most countries grown enormously uh, in the past 40 or so years. And that's the, the thing that people are referring to. Right. But I don't think it helps to call it deep, because it's not like it's sinister or invisible. There was a rapid-fire one that yeah. was requested, actually. This rapid-fire, one-word response to each of the following people. And so I'll say a name. Yeah. And uh, you can either say pariah, visionary, unsophisticated, <laughs> reckless, brilliant, too early to tell. O only those options. Or whatever other <clears throat> word that you okay. think. Steve Bannon. Wicked. Dominic Rabb. Too early to tell. Heiko Maas. In over his head. Sergei Lavrov. Dark. John Kerry. Irrelevant. Hillary Clinton. Even more irrelevant. Wang Yi. Player. Stephen Cohen. Sharp. Elizabeth Economy. Engaging. Ron Paul. Quirky. Boris Johnson. Uproarious. Donald Trump. Underestimated. Neil, I'd love to speak with you for <laughs> another few more hours, but uh, we have a uh, gala to attend, so uh, thank um, you so much for your time. My pleasure. Any, sure any final words? 
Um, Neil Ferguson. Neil Ferguson. Jet lagged. <laughs> Thank you, Neil. <laughs>